Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, everyone. It's producer Amanda checking in to make sure everyone is staying sane and safe during this very anxious time. A quick announcement. We are going to continue to record episodes of The Alarmist remotely and with no guest in order to comply with quarantine guidelines. We're pushing off a few previously scheduled episodes like the Astor Place riots in order to bring you more topical content and some lighter subjects to ease all of our anxiety during this difficult time. Coming up next week is who is to blame for a toilet paper hoarding. Don't miss that. We're also going to continue with Aftermath episodes. Coming up is a mailbag episode, so write in with any questions for The Alarmist Rebecca, Fact Checker Chris, or Producer Amanda, me. Questions about the podcast or personal questions. We would also love to hear your opinions on the state of the world, how you're handling quarantine, or opinions on past episodes. Email us at thealarmistpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us at alarmistthe. Instagram us at thealarmistpodcast. Or better yet, leave us a voicemail at 844-370-8643. Now here's today's aftermath. An Elio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Aftermath. Today, we are talking to guest expert Phil Scratton, author of Hillsborough, The Truth, and Professor Emeritus in the School of Law at Queen's University in Belfast. 
You heard a bit of it on Tuesday's episode, but here we're going to play you the extended cut because every second of it is so interesting. So thank you so much for um, taking the time to speak to us about this. Right off the bat, um, if, if you could just tell us uh, some of the main factors that led to this tragedy, I understand this is a loaded question, but uh, as you know, as best to your ability. I think the important issue about Hillsborough is that there were two versions from the uh, outset. First of all, there was the uh, official version, which came uh, from the police primarily, but, and that was then uh, developed further by the investigating agencies. And in this case, because it was such a major tragedy involving the deaths of so many people and injuries to many others, and witnessed, I might say, by uh, 50,000 people who were actually in the stadium and being live uh, by television, uh, it was uh, obviously clearly um, of national interest. Uh, and right at the outset, the commander in charge, the police commander in charge, stated that Liverpool fans had stormed the ground, broken an exit gate, gone down the tunnel into already overcrowded pens. And you have to understand pens as being penned to the side and the front and not seated, standing only. And people there were crushed. Uh, there were approximately now, we've worked out, there were nearly two and a half times as many people on those steps. There should have been. And the official version that came primarily from the police in the immediacy of the of the tragedy before people had been pulled out of the pens the match commander had stated that they had rushed the ground now everybody who was involved in that directly and survived stated that was untrue and over the next week after the disaster and it was the 15th of april 1989, and in the days that followed, a version of events came from the police, uh, which reinforced that early, uh, that early notion. It was clear they hadn't broken down the gate. That was disproved even on the night of the disaster. The gate had been opened to relieve a crush outside the ground. But the fans had entered, entered the ground, and a ground that they weren't familiar with, a stadium they weren't familiar with. And they went down a tunnel that was directly opposite them, not knowing where it led. It was a one-in-six-gradient tunnel. It was illegal, actually. And they went into the back of already crowded pens. They were unstewarded. And the compression became so great, they couldn't get back up the tunnel because more people were coming down. And the lack of stewarding, the lack of policing... Um, meant that the people in the pens, and those pens were crushed. A, a, a barrier collapsed, and people went down one on top of each other. And because there were high fences around the stadium, the police on the outside and the first aiders on the outside couldn't get into the pens to get people out. So the version that came out in the early days, the Liverpool fans were totally responsible, dominated the media. It dominated the investigations by the police. It dominated the investigations uh, by the judicial inquiry. And it also dominated uh, the inquests, the initial inquests that were held a year and a half after the disaster occurred. And in actual fact, the uh, inquests 
gave a verdict of accidental death. Now, that was contrary to the all that was known from the fans' experiences, all that we could see on television and the coverage, etc. And almost immediately after the disaster, I formed the uh, Hillsborough Project, which was funded by Liverpool City Council, which is where most people uh, came from who were in the stadium, Liverpool, or certainly the Liverpool fans came from. And I formed that uh, project, and we produced two reports, one in 1990, so very soon after the disaster, and another more substantive report in 1995, which demonstrated that not only uh, were, were the fans not to blame, not only were the fans not responsible, but there were very serious failures in the condition of the stadium, the policing, the stewarding, the safety, uh, that this was a tragedy waiting to happen. And so we challenged the, the verdict. And that challenge to the verdict um, brought about a a very well-known film by one of Liverpool's great uh, filmmakers, uh, Jimmy McGovern, called Hillsborough. That came out in 1996. But it was quite clear we were getting nowhere with our critique. So in 1999, 10 years after the disaster, uh, I decided to write the book Hillsborough, The Truth. And in that book, I exposed uh, not only the real causes and the real circumstances of the disaster, but I also demonstrated how seriously the investigations and inquiries had failed. And that was uh, the beginning, I think, of a counter move to actually try and access the truth. Now, the interesting thing about that was that when the book came out, it was greeted with um, a major uh, coverage in all the media, serialized in some of the newspapers. And I really thought at that moment that the inquest verdicts would be quashed and that it would all be reinvestigated. And what was really staggering was that nothing happened. I call the, the decade of the 2000s, from 2000 till 2010, the fallow decade when nothing happened. And it was only after the persistence of the Hillsborough Family Support Group and also my own work on the research that in 2009 the government agreed to reopen the investigation 20 years on and the Hillsborough Independent Panel was formed. My question really is uh, when it comes to the police um, and their part in the tragedy, um, would you place the blame more on Duck and Field himself or the South Yorkshire police as a whole? I think it's important to really understand the complexity of Duck and Field's appointment as the match commander on the day. He had only policed, been in charge of policing two previous matches, games, at that stadium. And he was inexperienced. In the film Hillsborough, we demonstrate the reason, very clear reason, why he was given so little lead-in time. 
there had been a scandal within the South Yorkshire Police Force and his predecessor, who had experience of uh, being match commander at Hillsborough, was removed from the job. Duckenfield was parachuted in, but he had an experienced team around him. And when he was caught in the headlights in the police control box, and he could see that there was a crowd outside that was becoming quite dangerous when he made that decision to open the gate, you would have expected his senior officers, who had a long experience of policing that stadium, would have intervened, and they didn't. So the the issue is that whilst he, of course, was responsible for the decision to open the gates, while, of course, he was responsible for the lie that he immediately told that went all around the world. There were others, the match, not only the match commander, the ground commander, the commander outside the ground, all of those senior officers who had experience of policing Hillsborough and who contributed through their own negligence and neglect to the situation, the escalation of the, the situation. So, yes, Duckenfield had to be held responsible for his own failings. But there were others who failed very much so as well on the day. Yes. And can you talk to us a little bit about the climate in the 80s between the Liverpool community and the South Yorkshire police? Well, there hadn't really been um, much of a climate between Liverpool uh, people and the South Yorkshire police in the 1980s, what there was in South Yorkshire was a climate between working class people who lived in South Yorkshire and many of whom either worked down the mines, the pits, or had, it was a big pit area, big mining area, or had um, family members who worked down the pits. And there had been, during the early 80s, from 1984 to 1985, there had been a miners' strike. And the police were very heavily criticized for the way in which they went in hard uh, against the, the miners who were on strike. So the South Yorkshire police came to Hillsborough at the end of the 1980s with a tarnished reputation for heavy-handed policing. And it's interesting when I look back, because I wrote the book, The State of the Police, in 1985, and examined a lot of the South Yorkshire policing of that coal dispute, the miners' strike. And it's interesting to note that many of the senior officers who were responsible for that heavy-handedness were also senior officers who policed Hillsborough four years later. That I, I think you're right. I think that's a very important point to kind of touch upon. Um, can... Now, we talk a lot about the segregation of the fans uh, as a major factor in this tragedy. Um, why were the Liverpool fans assigned the Leppings Lane entrance with so many, with so few turnstiles? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Alarmist. I think that it doesn't really make any difference which set of fans had been in the stadium. It was a capacity crowd. And if that part of the stadium was unsafe for Liverpool fans, it would have been equally unsafe uh, for Nottingham Forest fans who they were playing on the day. In actual fact, as our work showed, and as my, as my book and as, as the Hillsborough Independent Panel report, which I'll come to in a minute, showed, uh, there had been a very near tragedy in 1981. Uh, when um, Wolverhampton Wanderers played Tottenham Hotspur, and that was in the Leppings Lane end. But at that time, the terrace wasn't broken up by pens, so when it became overcrowded, people could disperse sideways and weren't trapped within the barriers. So uh, it was a danger for whoever, whoever was in that end of the stadium. It was decrepit, it was out of date, the, the barriers were old, uh, and you know all of the all of the lack the lack of safety was a lack of safety for whoever had been in there. 
The issue about why Liverpool fans were assigned that end is quite simply because they were approaching the stadium from Liverpool across the Pennines and they were approaching the stadium literally from that end of the stadium, whereas those coming up from the Midlands were approaching the stadium from the other end. So it it would have meant they would have had to cross over to have gone to opposite ends. That was the official explanation. And it's one that is fairly logical. But I want to emphasize that it doesn't matter who was in that stadium at that end, in those circumstances, the deaths would have followed because it was a capacity crowd. And I think that sometimes that becomes a bit of a red herring to the issues, the real underlying issues of causation in terms of the disaster. Yes, it seemed like there was an extreme lack of coordination uh, on the part of the stadium owners. And in your opinion, uh, and and lack of safety, were there steps that the stadium owners and the management could have uh, taken to ease the bottlenecking on the Leppings Lane section? Well, I think that we have to look at the way in which that game was managed, this match was managed. The Football Association hired the stadium from Sheffield Wednesday Football Club. So the owners play no real part other than hiring their stadium out to the Football Association. The Football Association failed dramatically to act on the dangers that had been clear the previous year when Liverpool played exactly the same team, Nottingham Forest, and had been crushing. They failed to act on the knowledge that they had from the previous uh, semi-final when there had been crushing. That's the one I mentioned between Tottenham Hotspur and Wolverhampton Wanderers. Uh, And so, you know, the the issue around um, the responsibility lay with the Football Association, but it also lay with the South Yorkshire Police because they were responsible for the policing outside the stadium. And then the club's officials were responsible for the stewarding inside the stadium, but also the police were responsible for stewarding inside the stadium. So it was the complex mix of those institutions that had to bear the brunt, in, in, first of all, in my opinion, had to bear the brunt, but now, subsequently, with the second inquest, have been held responsible for all of those failings. You, you would point the finger less at the actual stadium owners and more at the association. Well, I think that the stadium owners had a duty to keep their stadium in good repair, and they argued that the local authority, that's the Sheffield Uh, City Council, uh, had passed their stadium as fit for purpose. Now, we've explored that too, and we found that the actual actual examination, the actual examination of the stadium, the assessment of the stadium as being fit for purpose was inadequate, and we've exposed that as well. And we've held the local authority responsible for that in uh, in our independent panelist report, which led to the more recent sequence of events. So, you know, it, it, it was a mixture of all of those issues, and we've been very careful in our work to actually apportion responsibility clearly to each of those institutions. But the overarching responsibility was actually the responsibility of the police for a safe passage of the fans 
in the approach to the stadium. And we have to remember they're they're being uh, they're being led by the police through. Uh, what are Victorian uh, back-to-back housing streets. So it's not exactly like we would think of a modern stadium where there's a big area outside of openness where people can be dispersed. They were very tightly confined. So they were led there by the police. They were led into the stadium by the police. They were supposedly regulated outside through these old Victorian-type turnstiles, which is where the first bottleneck occurred. But that whole entire process, I mean, when you think of that area outside of the back of the Leppings Lane Terrace, there was a wall on one side and a river on the other, and there were only limited turnstiles through which all of the Liverpool fans had to pass. When we worked it out, twice as many fans had had to pass through those turnstiles than in any other area of the ground in the same allotted time. So it was, it, it, it was, as I've argued so many times, a tragedy waiting to happen. Oh, I, and that is such an important detail. Thank you for walking us through just what it looks like for those of, those of us who have never been there. It sounds like to me, if you had to pick what I know there is an abundance of failures that led uh, to this tragedy. But if you had to pick what is the most to blame, you would ultimately choose perhaps the police. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, it's not that I would choose it. They've now been held culpable. I mean, you know, one of the things that's been so important and where I would want to pick up on on the story, and I'll be brief, as brief as I possibly can, what I want to pick up on is that once we had the independent panel, we had access to two million documents from all the authorities. We had my research team based in my university over two years, examined documents from over 80 different sources, including 50 institutions. This was a mammoth task. And when we went through those, uh, through those documents, we were able to trace precisely where responsibility laid at every stage of the process in terms of the long history, in terms of the immediate context, in terms of the circumstances on the day, and I have to say in terms of the aftermath, because what came afterwards was a major cover-up, and we've exposed all of that. I mean, I can say this without any fear of libel, because we have we not only demonstrated it, but when we got that to the second inquest, which came after we'd published our report, the decision was taken to... Um, annul the verdict from the first inquests and to hold new inquests which lasted, believe it or not, for two full years. And I was on secondment to the legal teams throughout those two years and we re-examined all that we had been through on the independent panel. And what came out of that were 25 findings against the authorities, 15 of which were against the police. And the verdict, the short-form verdict that was delivered, was that the fans hadn't died accidentally, but they had been unlawfully killed. And the nature of our system is, when you have a verdict such as unlawful killing, you cannot attribute it directly to any given individual. 
But what they could do and what the jury did do was to name 15 substantive failings in the policing on the day which contributed to that unlawful killing. And then the other authorities were also blamed, the architects and the, um, the emergency response and so on and so forth. But the most important element of that verdict, and I'll never forget this because I was obviously sitting in court and we had over 40 barristers working for the families in the most, it's the longest um, inquest in legal history in the UK. And we were sitting there, and when the jury foreperson was asked, did the fans in any way contribute to this disaster? She stood there, and everybody waited, and she just said no. So what we saw at that dramatic moment in the court was a complete reversal of the first first inquest. Now in a court of law, the police were being held responsible. Now in a court of law, the other bodies that had contributed were being held responsible. And now in a court of law, the fans were completely exonerated of any responsibility for the disaster on the day. And yet for the previous, at that time, 25 years, the general public, fueled by, an, by a hostile media, had actually held Liverpool fans responsible for the deaths of their own people. I knew that was wrong all the way through. Our report stated that. Hillsborough, the truth in all of its editions stated that. But now in the court of law, it changed. And every newspaper the following day apologized. Every newspaper that had previously held fans responsible front page the issue stating that the fans were exonerated and the authorities were held responsible. Well, Phil, thank you so, so much for helping us understand um, this terrible tragedy and and how it all unfolded. And thank you so much for your work in helping uncover the, the truth of what happened that day. I want to just give you, and you might want to put this in or not. Yes. I want to give you a quote. Please. This is from Eddie Spirit, who became a close friend of mine over the years. His son died in his arms, and he lost consciousness and woke up at five o'clock on the day, two hours after the disaster, in a terrible state in hospital. And many years ago, I interviewed Eddie, and he became a close friend. This is his quote. The crush came. It was like a vice getting tighter and tighter and tighter. I turned Adam round to me. He was obviously in distress. There was a police officer on the track through the fence about five or six feet away, and I begged him to open the gate. I was screaming, my lovely son is dying, begging him to help. He just stood and looked at me. I punched the fence right at the beginning when I was begging the officer to open the gate. I could have got Adam out. I know that because I was there. Eddie became a a great friend, and he died in 2011 from the early onset of Alzheimer's. 
this articulate working class man, a great fighter, died as a direct consequence of long-term injuries sustained at Hillsborough, and he lost his son. It's uh, it's unthinkable and just devastating. We will make sure that these stories continue to be told, and it's just important that we continue to talk about them. Yeah, and it's important that I continue to research them, and that's exactly what I'm doing at the moment in Northern Ireland with other cases. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Phil. Rebecca, thank you for your interest, and good luck with the broadcast and the podcast. Anytime, just get in touch. Again, we want to thank Phil for taking the time to speak to us. Um, this was an absolutely devastating tragedy. Um, thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to chime in with all of your thoughts at thealarmistpodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on social media on Twitter at alarmistthe or Instagram at the Alarmist Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. See you next time. Erios. Powered by ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.